What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. And it's funny, I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, it's funny. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagaro. And Bill, today we have a, a really interesting topic I want to get to. First, we have one listener-submitted question, and that is from Caroline, our Patreon subscriber, who we appreciate very much. Appreciate all you guys, and if you want to check that out, that is patreon.com slash Diaries, where you'll get access to bonus content and other episodes that you won't get on the regular platforms. She wants to know, Bill, have you ever met Scott Peterson, the infamous wife murderer, and what do you think about him? I think it's 64 cells, and therefore, kind of the guys who 
you know, they want to get away from the, the, the bad stuff that happens here in East Block, and, and they go up there to avoid problems. The administration put him there basically so he would not be victimized. And that's the short answer about where he's at and what happened on Death Row. He really would not have made it on the normal yards, so they put him there. As far as what I, I know about him, look, he has a very active case right now. He's appealing his conviction, so I don't want to get into what I think he's guilty or innocent. But, you know, as far as prison guys are concerned, he wasn't the kind of guy you had to watch out for. He wasn't the kind of guy that was going to get involved in making knives and trying to kill you. So he was a non-issue. He said hello. I said hello back. But there was never where I had to keep my eyes on him because he was a convict. Never had to do that. Scott Peterson's a prisoner going through an appeal, and that's really about all of it. He pretty much stayed to himself, didn't get involved in gangs, which was a smart move. He didn't get involved in politics, although a lot of people try to take advantage of him because, of course, in prison, people believe that guys like Scott Peterson, who have attorneys like Garagos, have money. So therefore, they try to get into him by strong-arming him for his money or what they believe is money. So he was taking the North segregation, and that's where he left, and I never saw him again. So charming guy, creepy guy, regular blends in guy, funny guy. I think the common conception yeah. is that he's kind of a douchebag. You know, it's hard to it's hard to call because I'm only looking at him as another guy. So you know, women get involved in the whole looks thing. I looked at him as a normal guy. He was a guy who had a bad. He had made, he made some bad decisions in his life. Whether he's guilty or not, I don't know. But he made some bad decisions in life. Um, I don't think he comes off as a douchebag because if you didn't know what he was here for and you met him in a bar or you met him fishing or whatever, he doesn't come off like a person that you would say, huh, Harvey Weinstein. He doesn't. He comes off as a normal guy. He looks you in the eye when he talks to you. He's a normal guy. He's not creepy. He's none of those things. But then again, you bring in the case that he's here for, and automatically you can't help but start looking for those signs. In my opinion, looks like a pretty normal guy, acts like a pretty normal guy. Um, he made some really bad decisions in his life. I think the biggest one was probably getting together with Amber Fry. And again, I won't comment on his case because he's going through an appeal. I don't want to affect that. But obviously, one of his biggest problems was having a, a relationship with Andrew Fry, who turned on him, and whether she's being truthful or not, she really comes off as a kind of person who is looking for notoriety, she's looking for, because obviously what she's done after that. So, anyways, it's just, again, a very unfortunate situation. I don't think he's the kind of a creepy guy, but I'm not looking at him for his case, because obviously I'm not involved in the politics of taking matters into my own hands, and doesn't really matter to me. Um, I basically observe everybody here. So my call on him is pretty normal guy that made some bad choices. I'm assuming he couldn't play golf while he was at San Quentin. You know, he's kind of known famously as a golfer. I mean, could he get like a, a broomstick and break it in half and make a ball out of a bunch of tightly wound 
duct tape and I don't know, set up some kind of makeshift course out there, or is that just not an option? Wow, seriously, man. You gotta break a broomstick <laughs> on death row where it look good look like a vampire steak and he's gonna be out there playing. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt had a bad weekend with it involved too much alcohol. <laughs> no, there's no golf courses on death row. I'm sure he missed his coffee, but the, the, the only game he played out there was probably a pickup game of basketball. Well, thank you, Caroline, for the question. And as I said, check out that Patreon page at Death Row Diaries. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. Feel free to send any questions in that you'd like us to answer, and I will read them. I'll get to them. So we appreciate it. Now, Bill, before we start this conversation, I have to ask you something. Are you a cop? believe i'm still seeing that trope uh, please everyone the cops don't have to tell you if they're a cop <laughs> so i was watching tv and this happens all the time we see this some guy did something he got ratted out by some guy who sent him to prison that guy himself was a low-life deadbeat convict who had something to gain by ratting him out and i'm and this happens in a lot of false convictions majority of them I think but that's not really what I'm talking about what I'm talking about is if you look at this from an outside perspective cops dealing with criminals who are self-interested and trading favors and turning on each other what could go wrong should this system exist it occurred to me maybe not yeah uh, I'm sure there's a question there from from you but I, I didn't see the question what is the question Matt should police work with criminal informants at all? Uh, yeah, that's a good Okay, so, yeah, I mean, um, wow, that's, that's a really good question. And it's, it's, I, I normally would have an answer for it, and I do have an answer for it, but I'm really thinking it through because, you know, if I have to put myself in the perspective of being a guy who, let's just say, you know, I have a family member who was harmed by someone, and you know, the first instinct for a guy is to go out there and handle his own business. But if you if you want to be a good citizen and you want justice to be done, that person be incarcerated, then of course someone's going to say something. Whether it's a camera, it's a, it's a good citizen saying, "Hey, look, this is what happened." I can see cases where it does work, and I can see cases where it wouldn't work because the criminal this time is is someone who has, as you mentioned, a vested interest in saying something that they're going to find credible, that way he gets off the charges against him. I, I think the scheme itself doesn't work well because when you're trading favors for favors in return, you tend to embellish because, like if you, for, let's say for example, Matt and I, you, you and I do something and I'm the mastermind behind the whole plan, I'm going to rob, and you just, you just drive the car, but you happen to walk into the robbery scene at the last second, a gun goes off and someone gets shot. And they only catch me. And the police are like, okay, we know you're the head guy. Who's the head guy? And what did he do? And if you talk to us, um, 
you know, we'll cut you a deal. Well, of course, the guy being me in jail is going to get an attorney immediately. That attorney that the public defender's office is going to come back and say, I need it in paper. If he gives you the mastermind of the plan and where the money's at and everything else, will you let him go or cut his time? Of course, the police want conviction. So they're going to say, okay, we'll give you a robbery. We're going to drop the shooting because you didn't intend to do it, although I may have been the guy shooter. And then in exchange, I give you who my partner was. So, of course, my partner was Matt Ralston, six foot four, decent looking guy, asked sometimes crazy questions. That's the guy. So the police go to his house and take him out. Of course, there's a six foot four guy, and he's found with a bag of money. Of course, I'm the one who planned it, but now I have an, inve- I have an invested interest to get off of the charges. So I tell my crime partner, which I'm lying about, and the only evidence they have of that Matt was there is me. But that's how things work. So the exchange for a favor thing, I think, doesn't work very well. If a person is trying to do well, he's a good citizen, he may have caught up in something, and he still does the time he's supposed to do, yet he informs the rest, that'd be more credible. You see what I'm talking about, Matt? The whole giving up his sentence and lowering his sentence for for information doesn't work well because it makes criminals make things up in order to be free of those charges. Yeah, and I also think it, it probably encourages a lot of harassment that civil libertarians wouldn't be okay with. For example, if we want to catch some big drug kingpin guy, you know, we can just go around shaking down every drug user who's had a conviction or you know doing some petty drug dealing try and get some information out of them and say well if you don't give us anything we'll take you to jail now of course i'm just seeing this on tv i see it enough on tv that i imagine it's pretty realistic i do know that cops harass people all the time i actually see them doing it so i don't know it's good enough for me to form my opinion yeah it does happen a lot i mean that's part of the the way that law enforcement uses CIs, confidential informants, and they, as you said, they're petty drug dealers, they're not very big, and the law enforcement um, agent, police officer, gives them a break if he informs on who he's getting his drug for, so he gets a pass to continue doing what he's doing, but yet he's telling them the bigger fish, and of course the bigger fish are getting caught, uh, and this happens in the mob, too, and that's one of the biggest things I think we're, we, you and I were discussing prior to the show was the mob and how that works. Yeah, of course the mob is going to lend itself to this because you have this pyramid construction of the hierarchy. So, you know, theoretically everyone can trade down to catch this one guy. Yeah, with, with the mob, law enforcement, and you see the FBI, they, they make this pyramid. They find out who's the top, who's the boss, who's the underboss, and who are the different captains and the crew members. And they usually, how it works is they catch a crew member or a captain or sometimes even a a high-ranking boss, and they put him in such a position that he starts giving up his partners in crime. So let me explain a little bit how that works in terms of how it's... So in the 50s and 60s, you know, there was this code of silence among these good fellows. And things kind of changed when Veloci came forward and he had those hearings and, and he started telling, and you had, of course the story of Henry Hill and you have Sammy the Bull of Gravano and these guys well, what really is going on there's been a lot of informing going on for decades there's very low key 
none of the big guys were involved. They used to just killed each other. But what started happening is when, and so let me explain it. It's, it's almost economic and it's about family. So if you're making millions of dollars a year, you live in a beautiful home, you, have, you drive a, a Porsche, you have Mercedes, your wife has diamonds, you guys are in a social club, your kids are going to private schools. Look, you live a good life. You're a criminal, but you live a great life. When you get pinched, like they like to say, when you get caught, they're usually gonna make it real quiet. Along the way, these monsters and other people in general started figuring, God, I'm gonna lose everything. Thinking that their first visit behind glass, it's their wife. And she's saying, look, the school bill is due. Our kids are gonna keep you out of school. The house bill's up. What are you gonna do? We need to get out of this, and I can't afford this. We're losing everything. That guy goes back to that cell, he starts thinking, he's thinking, he's thinking. And of course, all these conversations are being recorded. So along the way, a smart cop shows up at that guy's bars in his cell. There's nobody there. And he says, uh, so what are you gonna do, man? You're losing everything. All we need is a name. And that's how it starts. This guy, who is loyal to his family, to his wife, has another family, which is a crime family. And all he has to do is open a little door, give him a little bit of information, and they'll protect him. And that's how it happens. It's all about economics, too. Because this guy doesn't want to lose what he has. He's, lo- he's really used to the good life. And when you're used to that good life, man, you don't want to lose it. It happens on a lower scale in prison as well. And the California Department of Corrections learned how to deal with these guys. So it started in the late 70s or early 80s. So a lot of mob hits, a lot of stuff going on. Everybody was trying to come, these made guys in prison. And then, of course, CDCR started separating the heads of all these, these families. They'd stick them in Pelican Bay next to the Oregon border in complete isolation. And after 5, 10, 15, 20 years, where, you know, you got into this thing because you wanted power, but you live in a 10 by 10 concrete block. And your wife's coming to see you, and you're a strong guy. You're not giving up jack. But after that girl keeps telling you, I can't do this anymore. I need someone in my life. That guy. And that guy begins to think. Now, I actually know of a guy. He wrote a book about it. It's called The Black Hand. His name is Rene. And he came to a visit, and then he told this girl something to the effect of, I'm getting tired of this. Meaning his situation. Five minutes later, there's a lieutenant next to him. Do you want to talk to us? Boom. Immediately, yeah. I want out. And that's how it happens. They debrief these guys. Happens in every prison. These guys are these hard guys. But man, you spend 20, 25 years in a stone cage, isolated from everybody. You see your girl, your mother, whoever, through a glass partitioner on a phone for maybe half an hour every year. You get no mail. You get nothing because you're isolated. Yeah, you start thinking about it. Now, I will say this, man. There are guys in that situation who become harder. They mean, they're the elite. You can't break them. They actually become stronger when you do that to them. 
but there are those who look out for their families and they change. And that's how the prison system begins to debrief these guys. They get all the information from them and make it to the next guy and they keep going. That's how it works in the system and that's how it works with the mob on the street and with normal criminals as well. Yeah, so in this kind of high profile example, and we'll get to kind of like how this works on the street level, but let's say hypothetically you have some guy who's involved with the mob. Yeah, he's not a made mob member, but he has mob ties and he he gets he's going to do 15 years. So immediately I'm imagining he's thinking so first of all, what percentage of people are just going to roll over on their best friend apart from doing 15 years in prison? We were all robbing people, killing people. No one was great in this situation. I don't know. So he's got to weigh that. Then he's the most obvious thing he's got to weigh is, okay, Does this is this worth getting killed when I get out? And then in certain cases, he's got to weigh witness protection. Would I rather do this 15 years or whatever part of it and get back to my real life than have to move my family to Rooster Scratch, Arkansas, where I'm given a gas station to run and I want to blow my brains out. So I'm, I'm assuming all these thoughts are going through the guy's head. I don't really have a question, but does that sound about right? Well, it does, but it also depends on how loyal he is to that family. If you see he's not a main guy, he's an associate, he's probably not going to rat on his best friend. But he's going to, look, when you're in that kind of environment, you may not be connected, you may not hear verbatim what's going on behind closed doors, but you see everything. It's like when I go into the yard, I'm not involved with drug dealing or who's killing who, but I can look at the yard and by how people are, you can tell. You start reading people. These guys involved in mobs, they read situations. They may not know that Bobby in that room said to rob this store, but when the guy comes out and says, hey, we got to take care of this, he knows where it came from. So he's probably not going to give up his best friend, but he'll give up somebody higher. He'll give up information for that. And of course, it depends on how much he gives up and does he have to testify. Some of these guys won't have to testify. They give the information, they get their charges dropped, and they walk out of prison maybe two years later instead of 15. No one's the wiser. But then they become CIs, which are confidential informants. So he meets with an FBI guy or a cop and he gives information. In exchange, he stays out. He keeps He keeps dealing with these guys because he loves that lifestyle, but now he has a free pass. And then, of course, there's the other spectrum, which is guys who are made. Look at Sammy the Bull Gravano, main guy, underboss. Guy was a killer. He has 19 kills that he's actually caught to. The guy has a a very popular podcast about monsters. He's pretty smart guy, but he didn't start off by just informing on people. He was put in a position where the FBI caught his boss, which was the Gambino guy, John Gotti. And they said, look, you know, you're, you're loyal to this guy, but let, let, let's just give you a recording of what he says. So Sammy gets to listen to John Gotti badmouth him. And how he's saying that it's Sammy the Bull doing everything. So of course, Sammy the Bull, who's a loyal underboss, says, the hell with this, this guy's throwing me under the bus. That's not how it happened, and I can prove it. He turns on his own boss. Yeah, Sammy did some time, but he's out. And when the mob sent some guys to go get him, he 
set those guys back in a body bag because listen, this one thing people should understand, just because you turn into a, an informant does not mean that you're not a killer anymore. A lot of guys in prison think other guys tell us they must be a pussy all of a sudden. No, I know a lot of guys who are informing or informed and they're still killers. Sammy the Blue Gravano is a killer, but he turned. He turned because the people that he thought were loyal to him turned on him. Yeah, so how does law enforcement consider the ethics of someone like Sammy the Bull or working with someone like James Whitey Bulger, who was an informant while he was also like a mass murderer? So the Bull, if we believe him, I think killed, what, 20 people around there? So do we want this guy out and about? hanging out with us at a at a local pub well remember that those are the kills that we know that Santa, that uh that Whitey Bolger did those are the ones that he know but he probably I'd say he killed double that amount of people he was a he was a gangster he was a guy that people were afraid of in that neighborhood he was in and yeah he was a big time informant he had an FBI agent under his thumb as well and that agent was ultimately indicted that this guy, Waddy Bolger, was a bad individual. He was an informant. He had been telling from the beginning what he was doing was telling on the Italians. So the, his crew could rise. And he was using that to basically have a free pass to murdering people, to doing what he wanted to do. And he did it for decades. And the FBI partially was involved because, of course, his handler was dirty as well. So when you start handling these guys and you start seeing all this money flowing and you're a guy with eh, shaky ethics but you happen to be an agent, sure, you know, a couple hundred grand here, a couple hundred grand there, helps my kids through college, and that's how it happens. But as you know, Whitey Bolger was finally caught, I believe it was California, extradited back to that prison. Hell, they killed him in prison. That wasn't by chance. The guys that he sold up the river got to him. They killed him. But maybe in less egregious examples, do the feds, the people making these decisions, do they weigh the the good of letting out a dangerous person or someone who's done dangerous things versus, you know, catching someone higher on the totem pole? And sometimes it's about the totem pole. They don't think about the lesser guy being that bad. But remember, the FBI didn't really know who Bolger was. They knew who Sammy the Bull was, but he gave up such high people, and he gave them a real insider's look at what the mob was about, that they couldn't deny the probative value that outweighed the prejudicial value of letting this guy out at some point. Because Sammy has not continued to kill. He hasn't done that. He left that life. He became a, an author, a, a, a podcaster, He's living a different type of life. He's making money, of course. He's profiting from his experiences. And look, it's no different than what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not really profiting, but I'm, I'm giving information about what I know. And, and there's a lot of people who are not going to like what I have to say. Because I'm giving information to the public, which I believe is for the good of public to educate the public on serial killers and how these guys rule. A lot of guys don't like that. And look, the truth of the matter is, it does put a target on my chest. 
and there are people in prison that listen to these podcasts because we they now have these tablets that the California Department of Correction gives everybody, and they can subscribe to different uh, free podcasts. And I believe they can even pay for some. So some guys are listening to it on site. And uh, look, I'm not uh, one of those guys who uh, runs from from uh, from trouble. Uh, I'm not trying to look for trouble, but I believe this is something that's I've always considered myself a person that wants to educate, and this is important to me. But there's a lot of guys that are going to think that this is no different than informing what I'm doing right now. And as you and I have discussed, Matt, I've made a very technical decision on helping the public with serial killers that's going to come out probably later next year regarding that book I wrote, that people are going to absolutely say, hey, he turned. Let me call back. Hey, man. So is what you're doing, would you technically be called an informant, or are you comfortable answering that? Yeah, that's a a really hard question to answer for a guy like me who's been a convict for nearly 40 years. So so a long answer is, I made a decision to help the public, that I wasn't going to let the experiences that I have die with me. If I do, I wasted 40 years. I, I didn't learn anything. And if I can help people bring closure to family maybe some finalization by sharing the information that I have everything I've learned with them I I think that's valuable it it also really lets people know that I'm interested in that society out there uh, in this one I don't abide by prison rules I'm not going to run around and start telling everybody that's not what I'm doing my thing is specifically serial killers but uh, the, the question was, do I consider myself an informant? I do not, because I'm not informing on people in, in, you know, beyond the yard or anything like that. My specific thing is gather information from serial killers that society can use to possibly solve cases, prevent another murder. So, but yeah, look, there's a lot of guys in prison will think that as being, you're working with law enforcement. It's simple as that. Okay? And my usually my response to that is look I know what I'm getting myself into but the bigger picture is more important for me it's part of my rehabilitation it's part of me looking at the bigger picture of society to help them rather than just myself and what we were talking about earlier about the mob look there's no way to get that information that Sammy the Bull had and all these guys have turned on higher figures in the mob unless they give it up there's no it was very few I'm sure Donnie Brasco comes to mind the FBI agent that went into the mob, got into the mob, got, I think, almost made, and then he informed there, but he was a cop to begin with, and he got in there. But it's very rare for that to happen, and once he's gone, within six months, the whole hierarchy changes. So you need these guys to be able to get convictions because they can say, look, I saw that happen. He said it happened behind closed doors. With me, it's kind of the same thing. Matt, there's no way that law enforcement get the information I have from serial killers because they're not going to give it up to them. So I'm the inside guy. I'm the guy that gives the information. So, what do you want to call that? It's a hard question. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to put people uh, words in people's mouths, but call it what you want. I'm doing what I believe is best and what I believe is good for society at large and how it did for me to somehow try and stop these serial killers. But no one likes serial killers. That's not mince words here. The pieces of garbage are insects. They're perverted, twisted killers that kill children, they rape people, and I don't, I'm 
money. Uh, I'm working with law enforcement. That makes me an informant. You know, I always say those kind of things, right, man? Fuck no, they can't take a joke. So I'm assuming when you've gone to jail and then prison with these miscreants, how many of them, I would think all of them, want to become an informant because it's like one of their only forms of leverage but the problem is a lot of them don't really have anything but does that really stop them from trying to come up with something and how's that whole process work yeah, it really depends there's a lot of guys that are solid guys you put them in jail and they tell you fuck you i don't care put me in jail I don't, i'm not saying shit there's a lot of guys like that there's, a, there's actually a lot more like that than there are guys that actually turn hmm. so a lot of these guys get get arrested in a second on the safety, man. Screw you. It's, look, <laughs> but it takes it takes a while for you maybe to change your mind. I've been incarcerated. I've been in prison for forty years. That's four zero, four decades. My perspective has changed from that boy that I was when I came in. When I got arrested, when they asked me questions, you know, what I told them, I know nothing, man. Screw you. That's it. That's what I said. Well, what if you what if you made up what if you made up bogus information apart from giving up the real information that you have? Well, I mean, again, how could it really have helped me? I was in a pretty bad situation. There was nothing really I could do. Um, it wasn't like I was with a mob and I had four or five guys above me. There was really nothing I could do. They they arrested me and they charged me and. I basically said nothing. I'll wait. I'll talk to my attorney. So I'm a little bit different, but yeah, I'm sure it crosses all those guys' mind. Look, I had a I had an old convict tell me one thing a long time ago. He was about 65 years old. He'd been in prison for about 45 years. Here's what he told me. He said, "Everybody says they're not a snitch. Everybody says they're not an informant. And maybe they haven't told somebody yet. But un until someone offers you." that lets you out of prison in exchange for something you have and you pass on it, then you can say you're not an informant because everybody has the potential to be a snitch. This guy was had been in prison for like 45 years and he told me that. And I looked at him, he says, and the, and the answer to you is before you ask it is, I'm not, I'm not an informant. That's what he told me. Because, in other words, he's been given opportunities to tell hierarchy people he happened to be a monster. And he told me to go jump up a bridge sideways. But a lot of guys can't do that because they've never been given the opportunity to snitch and they've turned it down. Because we're going to lead into our second part of this episode here that you can find on our Patreon page that I mentioned earlier. But, Bill, of the guys you've known, how many of them ballpark have the capacity, the character, to be an informant? Well, they all have the capacity. They said that because their mind to do so. There's a lot of guys here that are monsters. And a lot of them have, have already turned. Some haven't. But it's not a matter of degrees of character. It's a matter of being smarter, maybe, or balancing priorities. What's more important, your wife and kids or being loyal to a gang? I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's not character's perspective. That's the word you're looking for. We'll continue this on Patreon, and we'll be back next week, of course. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. 